I grew up in a home that during the months of October through April, on Saturday nights, my brother and my father and I would be watching Hockey Night in Canada. Anybody know about that? I still do it. I learned the Canadian National Anthem at a very young age. I learned to love hockey. I've been to more games than I can count. I've caught a hockey puck coming off the ice. It hurts. You think it would feel really cold. It actually feels hot because it's so cold. But I love the atmosphere, the chill that you have when you walk into the arena. And it's an arena. It's not a stadium. It's a hockey arena. I grew up in Michigan, so my team was the Detroit Red Wings. They are the best hockey team. Hockey Town is what Detroit's called. And it wasn't until I was uh, graduated from high school that they won the championship that year. And I watched in awe as they, they were awarded the, the prize, the Stanley Cup. And, and, and they would skate around and enjoy of succeeding, of winning the prize. And last year, about this time, I got to see the Stanley Cup in person in Seattle, actually. But they had it there and they it tours around the, the country and the world. It's a massive trophy. It has a lot of history. It started in 1892 when Lord Stanley of Preston, who at the time was serving as governor of Canada, purchased a silver bowl measuring seven and a half inches high and 11 and a half inches wide. This was the first ever Stanley Cup. And from there, it grew and changed. And today it stands at two feet, 11 inches. It's a beautiful trophy. It's made of silver and nickel alloy. And after every season, the winning team and the organization has the right of having 34 individuals getting their names engraved on a ring of this trophy. Presently, there are more than 22,000 names that are engraved in the Stanley Cup trophy. It's gotten so big that as every five years or so, they take a ring off because they want to keep the same size, and that ring is, goes to the National Hall of Fame for hockey. It's, it's something. It's not light. It, it weighs over 34 pounds. And, and to me, whether my team wins or not, it's always a joy to watch the end when they skate around holding this over their head. They're the victors. And, and get this, this is pretty unique. Each player gets to take the Stanley Cup with them to anywhere in the world for a few days after they win. So the Stanley Cup has been in Sweden, to Russia, to Australia, to Afghanistan. It's a magnificent trophy. Very unique. The only sport, the only a professional sport that has the same trophy that's passed on to the winning team every year. It has a rich history. In fact, it has its own Twitter account. So if you want to follow where the Stanley Cup is, you can do that. It's weighty. It's big. Some even say maybe it's glorious. What comes to your mind when I say glory? What do you think of when I say glory? Do you think of the Stanley Cup? I did for a moment. Do you think of praise? Do you think of beauty? The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which translates meaning heavy or weighty. This morning, I want to tackle the meaning of glory. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it have to do with God? And, and what's our response to glory? We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 12, verse 20. This is following here the passage where Jesus enters Jerusalem in the fanfare. And then in verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said it's, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the, the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This passage is about glory. It's littered throughout these 20 plus verses that I read. Glory. It's very interesting. What do you think of when you think of glory? Some people think of creation. You might think of Mount Rainier. We talk about the mountain being a glorious thing because of its incredible size and dazzling beauty. It's a huge mountain. You can see it from 100 miles away. It's unmanageable. It's big. You can't put it in your pocket and take it home. It's even dangerous because it's a volcano. You can get close to it, but someday they say it might blow. The mountain is there. You can see it. And on a clear day, it can feel your windshield when you're driving. You can climb it. You can touch it. But it can kill you. You have to watch out. You say it's beautiful. You know it's beautiful. Some of you here are thinking, how can I sell my house and get a house with a better view of the mountain? Right? It's beautiful. You want to see it. You want to enjoy it every day. But glory. What is glory, really? Jesus is sitting there, and someone comes up to say, the Greeks are here, and they're looking for you. They want to see you, Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't reply to that, but is provoked to tell them why he really came. You know, these are the first people in John's gospel that seek him other than Israelites. And immediately Jesus is thrusted to inform them that he simply doesn't come into the world to save the Jews, but he, he came for the world, for, for all nations, for all tongues, all races. And he begins to discuss the hour of his glorification. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how does Jesus feel about that hour? He's scared. He lives in dread of it. He says, now my soul is troubled. 
And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? What does this have to do with glory? Why is Jesus scared of it? You know, the text, it's all about glory. Seven times we read it. Jesus speaks of it over and over, and he says, it's time for me to be glorified. And I'm troubled. Maybe we possibly don't understand the word glory. Do we understand the implications of glory? And we need to talk about glory very simply because every person in this room this morning is going after glory. You're going after glory. Young or old, you desire glory. In fact, I believe some of you here are wore out in pursuit of glory. You seek it. You're starved for it. And we're going to talk about the definition of glory here in a few moments, but I want to say first that Everyone in this room this morning desperately, desperately needs to know that they matter to someone. You need to know that. You need to know this morning, even though you came in here beaten or bruised or crushed, you matter to someone. Some of you think you're going to get that through a relationship, though, a human relationship. So others think they're going to get that through work or achievements. You have to know you're, you're important. You have to know that you matter. Some feel this morning that they're insignificant. You feel like you're a ghost already. You feel the lack of your own glory and you're desperate to find it. And you look at people sometimes and you think they have it. People that seem to be successful in either relationships or their, their achievements. And, and you want that. You want that. And we look at them and we say things, I wish I was like them. I wish I had what they had. And you begin to envy them. Why? Because you know and you see that people respect them, that people want to emulate them, they want to be white them, they, they, they're people of consequence. They look like people of substance. They, they matter to you and they matter to others. But what you don't realize is that they're just people. They're, they're real-life humans. They're like you. They're like me. And they're filled with doubts, too. Even the most famous people, when you listen to them, when they're not acting and they're actually talking or in their biographies, they're, they're consumed with doubts. They doubt their work. They, they doubt their existence. They doubt their, their purpose. They doubt how they live, whether it really matters or not. And they doubt whether people will actually remember them after they are gone. And we're like them. And they're in their pursuit for glory. And we are also. Everybody in this room wants glory. And the Bible teaches us what glory is. This morning I want to look at three things. What is glory? Why is God glorious? And what's our response to glory? What is glory? Why is God glorious? And what is our response to glory? But before I do, I want to pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under your word. God, I ask that you would speak this morning, that I would step aside, that people would hear from you. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would convict us and change us in this hour and this time. God, I ask all this for your glory, that you would be worshiped through it all. Be with us now. Teach us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. What is glory? 
The word glory in the Bible, as I said already, is a real original reference to a physical type. It's a heaviness or a weight. That's what the word means. Let me give you an example, though. Well, the oceans are glorious. They're literally glorious. I think about that. You stand before the ocean, and you cannot see the other side. It's unending in your eyes. I mean, you spend all this time, and we're going to leave here, hop in the car and drive the Pacific Ocean. You get to the beach, and you just see a huge ocean. You know when you sit down that there is a country on the other side. You just can't see it. It's that big. It's that huge. It's expansive. And you sit there and you take it in. You say, this is glorious. And you look at yourself and compare it to that. And you think how small you are in comparison of that huge thing. But the Bible talks about things not just in physical weight or size. It talks about people. It's talking about importance. Something is glorious because it has importance. It has impact. It's, it's seen. It's felt. It makes a difference. It's affecting to life. It makes a dent. Like in the passage that we read, that was read for us this morning in the Advent reading in Luke 2, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. They ascribe glory to God. He has come to rescue his people. This is weighty. This is important. This is huge. Let me explain it a different way. Just I want to make sure you get a good round picture. You have an issue in your life, okay? And you, you don't know what to do, a decision that you need to make. And so you decide you're going to call three people that you trust. And you call the, the first two, and you're asking. You're, you're giving the situation. You're asking how to proceed. You're taking good, diligent notes. But the third person, the third one, well, they're different. And what they say, you do. You don't, you don't even pause you just you hear it and you realize this is what I need to do and you do it you're quickly convinced you know that's what you should do what's the difference with that third person from the first two you've ascribed ascribed glory to their opinion you want to hear what they say their opinion their expertise for whatever reason you're giving real weight to their advice it has more impact than the other two their ideas have more glory than the others more glory than your own ideas, more glory than your own thinking. And you give them glory. That's why you're ready to hear their advice and ready to act when they say it. And so what is glory in relation to God? What is the glory of God? The Bible talks about it in so many ways. It's hard to, to even summarize it. To God be glory alone. You talk about the glory of God as trying to refer and to convey the glory of God into words, and it's, it's, it's impossible actually hopeless when we start working through that our words we don't have enough trying to pour the glory of God into words is like trying to pour the Pacific Ocean into a cup you'll just get a little bit everything else is going to spill out our, our simple words can't properly hold the weight of conveying the glory of God it'd be like taking this building and say you're going to take it home in your car you could take it apart piece by piece even small pieces but your car can't hold it it can't bear the weight of this building. And so the glory of God is too big for our words. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it doesn't just mean that God is holy, that he's righteous, that he's loving and wise and strong. It means in his holiness and his righteousness and his love and his wisdom and strength is, is beyond all comparison. It means in, in every one of those attributes, together and separate, God is beyond comparison. Let me put it this way. 
God isn't just beautiful. He is glorious in his beauty. And that means his beauty is so much greater than any other beauty that you see in creation. And so when we compare beauty that we have on earth to God, it's hideous in comparison to him. There's no beauty but God's beauty. And all beauty is derived from God's beauty. To talk about the glory of God means next to his wisdom, all, all wisdom is stupidity. It's foolish. Next to his goodness, all goodness is, is gross. It's wicked. Next to purity, all purities are filthy. Next to his grandeur, all grandeur is spotted. Next to his power, all power is pathetic. There is no comparison. That is the glory of God. In comparison, everything else is nothing. You know, imagine you have a very large scale, and on each side you have a tray to hold the object that you desire to weigh. And on one side you place a quarter, and on the other you place a Dodge Ram truck. What happens when you let go of the scale? The quarter flies, and you'll never see it again as the truck pummels down, right? There's, there's no comparison there, right? Would it make a difference if you switch sides? Would it change somehow? It wouldn't, right? The glory of the Dodge Ram is so much greater than that of the quarter. The quarter's existence is, is inconsequential in comparison to that of the truck. That's the same when we compare anything on earth to God's glory. It pales in comparison. God's glory is absolute. There's no beauty but his beauty. There's no wisdom but his wisdom. There's no righteousness but his righteousness. There's no, there's no power but his power. This is the glory of God. Secondly, why is God glorious? And this is where we dive into the passage. And I, and I wanted you to see from different angles the, the significance of glory before you look at the glorious Savior. Because as Jesus unfolds for us why God is glorious and why we should glorify him, we will want to, in our flesh, push back against it. We will not want to accept that as glorious. And we need to see this as glorious through the eyes of God. So coming back to John 12, verse 22, and Philip passes on the message to the men, and they inform Jesus that the Greeks are seeking him, and the, and the Greeks' message is simple. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I, I pray that that this phrase is on the mind of every preacher and every church throughout this country and throughout the world, that they get this and they understand it. And I pray this is on the lips of you as attenders, that you come in and you encourage me as a pastor or anyone else, and you say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. That's why we're here. That should be on the lips and the minds of all of us. That's why we exist. We want to see Jesus. And that's what they ask. And you would think that Jesus would reply to their request, but he doesn't. Instead, he informs them that the clock has now started. Time is ticking. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To, to glorify something is to, to show something, to reveal something, to display it. And we glorify someone's artwork when we display it prominently. So what displays the true glory of the Son of Man? 
Jesus' answer is his crucifixion. That's what displays the glory. His self-sacrifice and making atonement for sin. All of our questions of his purpose, of his character, of his plans are going to be answered in the death of Jesus. And Jesus explains yet again for them that in less than a week, he's going to die. And what the world sees as a serious humiliation, Jesus understands is the highest glory. This is why there's no clearer distinction between the Christian and the unbeliever than their view of the cross. Do you want to cut to the chase about your coworker or your friend or your family and whether they're saved or not? Ask them about the cross. How do they view the cross? You, you quickly find out if people are trusting Christ or not. Paul wrote that to the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was folly. But the apostle Paul continues, says, to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Charles Spurgeon writes, Christ's death is his glory, and it also ought to be ours. To spiritualize the Christ of God was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary, a glory never equaled, shown around the conqueror of death and hell when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just as a seed must be buried in the ground and decay to give birth to a plant, the Son of Man is glorified and bears fruit through his suffering and death. It is only through dying that Jesus becomes our Savior. If Jesus had not borne our sins on the cross, there would be no Christianity, there would be no church, there would be no Christmas. This is why we hang a cross here. This isn't a trinket, this isn't an old tradition. It's not like we can't take it down. We know how to remove it. There's bolts, we could take it down, but we don't. We choose to leave it there year after year, day after day, because without the cross, there's no Christianity. Without the cross, there isn't a church. There isn't Christmas. Without the baby coming at Christmas, we don't have the cross. Like the seed that first is buried and dies, Jesus bears the fruit of his kingdom through the cross and, and the tomb in which his body is laid. And having died for us, Jesus has gained and is still gaining his fruit. There's still a harvest. There's still yet more work to be done, more fruit to be gathered. He's still gathering his people. Folks, that's why we're here. That's why you're here. There's still yet more to come. And in the midst of teaching us about glory, Jesus then instructs us even further. In verse 25 and 26, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And Jesus says that we're not to love our lives, but to hate our life in this world. This is heavy, right? Am I the only one that shrinks back when I read that the first time? Let me be honest. You can be honest, you're in church. Shrink back a little bit. What is he saying here? Maybe I have it wrong. 
Jesus is not saying that we should hate life itself, nor should we hate the good things that God has placed in this world in our life. Jesus' meaning is made more clear when we note the two different Greek words that he uses for the word life. And the first clause, when Jesus tells us not to love our life, he uses the word psyche, which gives us the word psychology. Jesus means that we're to reject the worldly way of thinking, the worldly way of feeling. We're to reject the life of ego, is what he's saying. But then Jesus speaks of gaining eternal life, and he uses the word zoe for life, which joined to the word eternal refers to a divine life in us. So we are to turn from the former, the worldly ego, to the latter, the divine life that enters through us through the Holy Spirit. One man that learned this lesson that I've appreciated learning from in his reading and in the books is George Mueller, who became famous in the 19th century England for the great number of orphanages that he built and that he maintained through the power of prayer and through the giving of God's people. And Mueller was once asked his secret. And this is what he says. He says, there was one day when I died. I died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions and his preferences and his tastes and his will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of the brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Wow. George Mueller showed us that dying to self is to lead a life of service to God and man. And the only way to taste the glory of God on earth is to live for him. We, we follow Jesus in a life of cross-bearing, self-denial. We follow Jesus in a life of service to God and to man. We, we follow Jesus by holding fast the doctrines of his word and pursuing a holy life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have a promise. God gives us one in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. This isn't a command, it's a promise to have Christ's encouragement, to know Christ's approval, and to live by Christ's power. We have Christ. We get Jesus. Would you rather have pleasant circumstances in your life without Jesus? Or do we realize that the worst this world can give us is nothing compared to having Jesus? That living without him is truly the worst experience that anyone can have on earth. Well, Jesus continues to pour out his soul, knowing, knowing what's going to transpire. He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is troubled. He's bothered by what will happen. And we may think, that the physical pain that Jesus will endure on the cross was the greatest sufferings, and it was great, but that's not true. Jesus would suffer the wrath of God by taking our sins upon himself. Jesus is troubled because he would be made a curse for us, as the scriptures say. He would suffer the righteous wrath of a holy God to pay for our sins. William Hendrickson wrote, the realization of the inexpressibly dreadful character of the impending descent to hell shook the human soul of Jesus to its very depths. Jesus' troubled spirit shows us his solidarity with human suffering. It shows us his humanity. 
The spirit of his faithful resolve sets an example for us as believers. He found the strength in his knowledge of God's will for his life on earth. This was the very purpose of his life. This is why he came, was to go to the cross. Jesus was born to die. Let that sink in. This baby that we'll sing about next Sunday was born to us here on planet Earth to die. That was his purpose. That's what the angel said to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the Jews think you're going to come save us by conquering Rome. And Jesus says, I have to deal with sin. You need me to deal with sin. And the only way to deal with sin is through a blood atonement. He was born to die. And even a higher motive than coming to die, Jesus points to it. He says he came to glorify the Father. He literally loved God's glory more than his soul. And so he found strength to overcome the suffering of the cross. And he prays, Father, glorify your name. And did you get this when I read it? Did you see what happens after he prays? It's, it's amazing to think. I don't want you to gloss over it. It really happened, just so you know. Like, it's true. He prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God speaks from heaven. You know, this isn't the first time that God answered prayer from heaven. At Jesus' baptism, God's voice was heard saying, this is my beloved son, whom I well pleased. And God spoke similar words from heaven during the transfiguration on the mount. And in this instance, God is expressing his approval of Jesus saying, I've already glorified your name and I will glorify it again when you die for the sins of my people. God was glorified at Jesus' birth. He was glorified in Jesus' perfect life, and he's glorified in his ministry and his death on the cross. Three, what is our response to glory? We have looked at the definition of glory and why God is glorious, but last, what is our response to glory? Well, we see the response of the crowd. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus informs them that the voice that he had heard was intended for them, not him. Jesus' death on the cross would be a judgment on the world. How? How would it be a judgment? Well, first, it would be by showing the sinfulness of sin. Why did God's perfect son die on the cross? It was for sin. And the world writes off sin as only a small thing. Today, sin is excused as dysfunction, not as something that's evil. But the cross exposes the evil of world sin and in that way judges the world. Second, the world's attitude towards Jesus is judged at the cross. How did the world respond to Jesus? How did they feel towards Jesus? He lived a perfect life, and he sought to, to teach and to love people. He wanted to heal them, and he wanted to care for them. And how did they treat Jesus? They nailed him to a cross, and they killed him. That is how the world responds to Jesus. 
That's how the world views Jesus. And third, the cross overthrew the ruler of the world, Satan. You know, the irony of, of all this was the cross was Satan's greatest victory, so he thought. And he finally got Jesus. But through the cross, sin is banished. Sin is defeated. One pastor commented, when a person becomes a Christian, he's delivered from Satan's grasp and the chains of sin which had him shackled him are instantly broken. Amen? Does that impact you at all? If not, you might not be a Christian. That should impact us. It's what Jesus' death on the cross does and shows us. And it's, it's so much more than that. It displays for us God's love for the world. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, he would send his son to take our nature upon himself and thus suffer such dreadful things. And here it God shows his love. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing love. It should affect us. And so the crowd answered him. They say in verse 34, we have heard from the law of that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. After Jesus says these things, he departs. He's not not to be seen again until the crucifixion. And from the beginning of the gospel, John has used light to describe Jesus. And light is a, a symbol for God. And applying to himself, Jesus is declaring his deity again. David sang throughout the Psalms, the Lord is my light, he is my salvation. And Jesus continues, even though he knows the response for the people, to challenge them to accept and to believe. And he does this because to reject the light is to be plunged into a greater darkness. This presents a challenge to those of you this morning who've come to church for weeks, months, years even, and have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You don't believe. Your encounter with Jesus and your rejection of him will not leave you with a little light. Rather, it will leave you with a deeper darkness. You need to understand this morning, friend, if you continue to reject Christ, you will regress from darkness to greater darkness. Things will not get more clear and lighter. They'll get darker. And there'll come a time when the gospel will no longer be available to believe. And this time may come through death, but it could also come when your heart has become so hardened through a life of unbelief that you will no longer be able to believe. So I plead with you this morning to believe on Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and to follow him. He is the light of the world. Verse 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, 
who has believed what he had heard from us, and to him has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The people reject Christ again. And really, from the outside reading this, it seems shocking, right? Remember what just happened. Jesus prays, and a voice from heaven responds. When was the last time you heard an audible response from heaven when you prayed? You would think that this this moment, this, this situation and hearing this would, would permanently stick in their minds as significant. This Jesus is something. He just got an answer from God. But that's not what happens. John tells us in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I'm surprised to hear that people could be with him and hear God speak to him and still not believe, and, and yet it gets worse. There were others who did believe, yet they still wouldn't follow. Verse 42, he says, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So let's track this. They, they listened to him, they believed in him, but they wouldn't say so publicly. How come? What was, what was so important that they couldn't look straight they could look straight at the Son of God in the face and turn away. And John says, it's for fear of the Pharisees. After all, these, these so-called believers were authorities in Jewish community, which meant their jobs and reputations were tied to the synagogue life. And the Pharisees, if you remember a few chapters back, had threatened those that if it came in contact or believed in Jesus, they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. And so to be bounced from the synagogue meant you could kiss your position and kiss your income goodbye. You were done. And that's serious. And so before we judge them too severely, though, think about your own conversion. Did that have any fear of retaliation from people? Maybe. I mean, my decision to follow Jesus was a response of an invitation to church. Actually, many of those invitations. So I believed. And the possibility of me being kicked out of my neighborhood wasn't possible. I mean, I was very close to being kicked out of school but not because I was following Jesus. But here's the grabber here. In the very next sentence, God restrains our instinctive sympathy for these guys by flipping on the light of their true motives. Why the hypocrisy? Was it something they feared? Yes, at first glance, but deep inside it was really something they loved. Look at verse 43. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Glory. Remember, I, I pointed you there at the beginning. I said that all of you are searching for glory. These people here craved it. They're addicted to it. Their drive was so powerful, it diverted them from the Son of God himself. And John is offering us amazing insight on the way that we tick. We love glory. 
That's why when I watch the Stanley Cup playoffs and I see the cup go up, my heart's stirred. I know the history. I know the weightiness of it. We love glory. We're created to look for it. We're created to love it and to find it. We're also created to worship. We're created to glorify God. You know, you're made to praise. Not just as a Christian, but as a human. You're made to praise. You know, mental health experts who do not know a thing about Christianity and don't give a lick about the church know that one of the signs of mental health is the ability to praise. The ability to find praiseworthy things. You know, a person who goes into every situation, whether that's a concert or a job or a relationship, and can't find anything to praise, nothing but complaints, we know what's wrong with them. Their, their, their humanity is drying up. To be able to praise and to be able to adore is the essence of what it means to be human. And the Bible teaches us, instructs us, commands us, actually, to praise God, to adore God. You must praise him. And people get upset at that. Unbelievers get upset, angry, that that, that would say that. I've had a few people, just a few in my life, they get very agitated at the thought that they need to, that they have to praise God. They say, God continually wants to thank you. He wants my praises, my accolades. He's always stuck on himself. This doesn't seem right. Why is God so stuck on himself? Maybe you've asked that question. Let me explain a little bit. Imagine for a moment, imagine how you glorify anything. Not, not, don't think about God, but anything. Imagine how you glorify it. The structure of glorifying anything, of giving something its due, is, is really three parts. You, you wake up to the reality of its glory. You grasp the magnitude of its reality. It affects you. And then you walk in accordance with that reality. Did you get it? You wake up to it. You understand it. You grasp it. You take it in. And you let it affect you. It affects your life. And you begin to behave in accordance to the glory that, it, that it's due. So taking that definition, walk with me now. You're, you're walking along a path. And that path is in a fog, a dense fog. You're walking along the path and you're just walking casually. Keeping one step in front of you, you're walking lightly. You're not paying attention of where you're going. You're trying to focus as much as you can, but suddenly the fog blows away and you pause and you stop because you see on the right side of the path, there's a shear of a 5,000 cliff drop. Your foot is right by the edge. In that moment, it grips your heart and you stop and think, I'm so glad I didn't fall. The magnitude and the danger of that situation. And you've been treating this path so lightly. This path should not have been treated so casually. You needed to watch where you put every foot down. You needed to hug the other side because you know what's on the other. And you suddenly begin to give the path its due you begin to realize the kind of skill it takes to walk on this thing. Or imagine another illustration. You've had for a number of years an old blanket on the back of your chair. Does it sound familiar to anyone? I said last week, did anyone remember that? It's been a long week, it's right. You have this chair, you have this chair in your bedroom and a blanket over it. You have it there and sometimes you use it 
It's not the prettiest thing. You, you pull it out, though, when you're cold, and you, you wrap it around you, and you read your Bible there. But one day, you're encouraged by someone to take that old blanket to the Antiques Roadshow. Does that ring any bells now? And the expert says to you, do you know what this is? Do you realize what you have here? It's an old Navajo blanket. It's worth a half million dollars. And you've had it for 60 years on your chair. What happens? All of a sudden, you, you see the fog is blown away and you grasp the reality, the magnitude of what that thing is. And you don't have it on your chair anymore. You don't wrap it around you anymore. You begin to act in accordance with it. You begin to give its due. You've been taking that, that thing lightly, but now you, you, you feel how weighty it is. See, the, the blanket demands you glorify it. The path demands you glorify it. The situation demands you give its due, that in, you act in accordance with the magnitude of the reality. Does that mean that the blanket is now arrogant and stuck up? Of course not. It's silly. But we recognize it now. You know that if you don't glorify it, if you don't give it its weight, if you don't treat important things as if they really are important as they are, you will miss out. You will lose. Friend, this is what it means to glorify God. He's due glory. You were made for this. Every single person here, you exist to glorify God. You were created for his glory. God is weighty. He's worthy of our praise. He's, he's worthy of our glory. And he should be on our minds continually. Moment by moment, every day. He should consume us. And we should look for moments in our days, every day, to praise him. To glorify him. This is glory. God is glorious, and our response to glory is to worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that teaches us, that leads and guides us, instructs us. I thank you for the reminders that we have in your word. And I thank you for this church. I thank you that we can join together week in and week out and glorify you. Help us, God, this week to not forget you. God, I stand before your church ashamed at the days that I get so busy with other things, I neglect you. I forget you in the midst of life. And I filled my life with things that Pull me away, God. I pray that it doesn't happen. I pray that as a church, it doesn't happen. I must to remember and to focus on you. Help us, God, as the church, as we celebrate Christmas this week and all of the activities, how maybe have parties to go to with coworkers or friends or family. I pray that we can be a, a witness to them. 
help us to, to utilize those situations, those circumstances, those discussions to, to draw people to a point of understanding the, the, the meaning, the purpose behind Christmas. That the Savior comes as a baby born to die. Help us to be gracious and loving to people. Help us not to, to be rude in our presentation of the gospel, but to love people in that. And God, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you, the friends that have rejected you, that have continued to live in unbelief. I pray that they'll be convicted this morning, that they will repent and they will turn and trust you. May they believe. May this be the first Christmas that they're your child. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.